Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is the Secret Library Podcast. And I can't believe it, but we are at season nine. Welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Carrie Mayer. She's the USA Today bestselling author of The Paris Bookseller, The Girl in White Gloves, The Kennedy Debutante, and under the name Carrie Majors, This Is Not a Writing Manual, Notes for the Young Writer in the Real World. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and lives with her daughter and dog in a leafy suburb west of Boston, Massachusetts. This is an exciting episode to share. Carrie's latest book, All You Have to Do is Call, is the subject of our conversation today. And this is really one of the first episodes on the show that we have directly touched the political situation in the U.S. So fair warning, we will be talking about book banning in this episode. We will be talking about women's reproductive health which is a major topic in All You Have to Do is Call. The other thing we'll be looking at is the phenomenon of when a novel appears especially timely, almost as if the book was written having read the recent newspapers. Now, all of us listening who write books know that unless we have a time machine and can be like the second Back to the Future where... Biff goes back with the almanac and is able to bet on all the races knowing what happens in the future, it's impossible, given how long it takes to write a novel, to know what the world is going to look like when we finish writing it. So I'm very, very excited for you to hear from Carrie about the process of writing this novel about the Jane Collective in Chicago in the 60s and how the themes and messages of it still resonate today and what publishing's role was in finding a time for this book to come out with a traditional press. So lots of juicy stuff in here. I'm very excited for you to hear it and delighted to introduce Carrie Mayer. Hey Carrie, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Oh my goodness. I have been very excited to talk about this book. There are so many things I want to get into. And I guess I'll just ask the big question, my my curious question, because there is this there is this phenomenon when an incredibly timely book comes out. And that is, when did you start writing it? Because there is this phenomenon where novelists seem to be a little bit psychic. And and then you see this book come out and everyone seems to forget that it takes a long time to write a novel. It's not like somebody just like read the paper and was like, ooh, that sounds good and dashed it off. So I'm just curious how this process unfolded for you with All You Have to Do is Call. You know, I'm really glad you asked that question because it really is true. And it is an accident when a book comes out into a particular moment like this. Um, It's a, 
I mean, in this case, it's hard to call it a happy accident because the world that it is coming into (laughs) is worse than the world in which I started writing it. Um, But, you know, we'll see how, like what it means for the release of the book. So, so yeah, so I got the idea for this book in 2018 before the Kennedy debutante, my first historical novel came out. Okay. Okay. Wow. And I was listening to an NPR story. Um, I was on my way to meet a friend for a movie. I was listening to NPR as I do. And they just had one of these like narrative, great narrative news stories about the women of the Jane collective. And I was like, I I had to like stop the car. I was like, oh my God, really? Like, it was one of these things where like, the more they said, the more it like, incredulous it almost became. I was like, women like, just like me without any special medical training, they started referring for abortions and then they learned to give them. And like, they offered all kinds of other interesting like women's health services to the women of Chicago. And then they were arrested. I was like, oh my God, like surely someone else has written about them. So of course, you know, you bring up Amazon and see if anyone else has written about them. And in fact, no, they had not. It was unbelievable. So that was 2018, okay? Right. Um, And then, you know, I was at that point about to release The Kennedy Debutante, and I was working on my second novel about Grace Kelly, The Girl in White Gloves. So I just kind of like filed it away in my mind. But, and then when it came time to sort of talk to my publisher about next books, um, I had like two ideas. I had this book that I was then calling The Jane Book. And then I, and I had the Paris bookseller about Sylvia Beach and the Shakespeare and Company. And my agent kind of floated these two ideas to my publisher and my editor really liked both of them. But they were like, we don't think you're going to go from the Kennedys and Grace Kelly to like the Jane Collective. Like, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, so, but they were like big guest Paris bookseller. So I was very happy to write that book. And so I put Jane on the back burner and wrote the Paris bookseller and, um, you know, then the pandemic, so then we're now we're in like early pandemic and, right. and all of this stuff. And so, and, and then it becomes time to like talk about what my fourth book is going to be. And I've, I really have grown more and more passionate about writing about the Jane Collective at this point. So <clears throat> we have this amazing Zoom call with my agent and my editor and her and, and the editor in chief of the imprint in which we're basically able to talk through a way of writing the Jane book um, that is kind of like big little lies, um, right. <laughs> is about domestic violence, but no one says that, you know, they say it's a novel about female friendship and like right. it's sort of a murder mystery. I'm like, that's how I want to write this book. Right. So, and they were able to get on, they were at that. So this is now like late 2020. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, we, that's, that makes sense to us. Go write that book. Okay, so, so all right, you know, Paris Bookseller comes out. I'm writing Jane. It still doesn't have its title yet. Um, and, like, as I'm revising it, Dobbs happens. And right. Dobbs brings out the righteous feminist in everybody. Oh, yeah. Like, everybody, right? So, you know, especially, you know, in the New York publishing houses. So, so they, they kind of, like, like, look at their their (laughs) upcoming books and they're like, oh my God, 
we have this book that's going to come out. <laughs> Aren't um, we brilliant? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, so that was kind of this book's journey through the system. Um, you know, it went from like a, like maybe, but probably not, um, to a, well, okay. If you can, if we, if we write it this way and then big, yes, like bring it, we're going to use all the words. I mean, I didn't think <laughs> for a while, like the word abortion was going to appear on the jacket copy, but it, it wow. actually, it does. It does. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I'm I'm really happy for the book that the publisher, my Berkeley is wonderful and has been nothing but terrific for me. Um, but but they are really 150% behind the book. So it's great. That is, yeah, I love I love hearing the evolution of it because I think there's two things in there that Made me th- at least two. We could go on for days, but <laughs> yes. the ones that come up for me are the the comment that you said earlier of you can't go from you know Kennedy and Grace Kelly to this, and the the way that I feel in today's day and age, it's possible for a writer to get pigeonholed in a way that I don't see when I look back on people's careers even thirty years ago. You know, I think. Uh, that's a very real like issue for writers, right? Is like getting, like getting in a lane and being asked to just please stay in that lane. And, you know, I, I think that just serendipitously, and, you know, it would be interesting to do like a whole conversation about when we look at some, we could pick a couple of writers and look at their careers and look, because I don't think any writer really goes from one lane and swerves into another one, right? There's like a slow like you put on your blinker (laughs) and you kind of like you move slowly into the next lane and then maybe a couple of books down you're now like two lanes over right right and that's happily for me to the Paris bookseller you know the way I wrote it the way Berkeley positioned it and everything turned out to be the perfect lane changer for for all you have to do is call um so, yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, all I have to do is call is, is pretty far away from the Kennedy debutante. I mean, it mm-hmm. has, it has some meaningful uh, thematic, thematic things in common, you know, strong women, you know, finding themselves in against the odds situations and making kind of life-changing and life-changing decisions. In all you have to do is call's case, it's not just life-changing decisions, it's like world-changing decisions, you know? And I, but I think that's what also Sylvia Beach and the Paris bookseller also did, right? Like Sylvia Beach and the women of the Jane Collective in no small measure created the world we're living in. (laughs) Um, But, you know, even that's true, even of Grace Kelly, really, when you think about that. So like maybe the blinker was on with Grace Kelly. Or maybe the seed was always in there and it just emerges, but I... Yeah. I think about this all the time with people like I, I it's a personal struggle also having written a book that has a mysterious element in it and then working on an actual mystery and being like is there an agent who's going to let me have both of these interests and so far I haven't found one and so it's it's just something that happens with publishing and I think it's I'm I'm excited that your journey allowed you to take the vision that you had and that it was able to be turned up rather than turned down for the sake of it coming out. Yeah. I, I, I feel very lucky that I'm in this position. You know, um, I have, 
great support. Um, you know, my agent is also terrific. So lots of puzzle pieces are in place. But I will say this also, I mean, since we're since we're talking to an audience of, of writers out there, it took me a very long time to get here. And I am 48, all right? And like I have five unpublished novels that will never be published <laughs> that were written in full and revised and like in, in some cases went out on submission and got no's, you know, before the Kennedy debutante sold and before I was in a in the position that we are now discussing, right? right? So like there was a lot of no and a lot of like being very patient and a lot of like tears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, there has to be in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you're still here, which is here I am. Fantastic. And we have these books. So let's talk about the book itself, because I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of how it's constructed. Okay. Because and you mentioned the kind of pretty little lies element. So you've got a lot of points of view that you're juggling. And in some cases, there are, the other element is that there are so many compelling characters who are not point of view characters. So I'm wondering, how did you make the decision? I mean, Veronica is an obvious choice to be a point of view character, but I'm curious about how you decided who was going to get to speak for themselves and who evolved as you as you went through the process. So also a really good question. And interestingly, um, the three point of view characters kind of emerged for me in like all at once. Um, oh, wow. so yeah. And, 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 and Siobhan, uh -huh. Veronica's best friend, like her, like best friend who helps her, uh, found the Jane collective. I knew she was not going to be a point of view character. I wondered about that because I so, love her. Yeah. So let's, well, let's talk a little bit about the evolution yeah. of that. So, okay. Obviously Veronica, I, I wanted to right? I knew one of the women had to be a founder of Jane and a provider, right? Yep. But I, I kind of wanted her to be a woman who had not had an abortion. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Who had gotten into this business, um, for other reasons. All right. And so that's Veronica, but her mm -hmm. friend, her very good friend, Siobhan has had an abortion and it was, and, you know, this is not a spoiler because it's, it's in the prologue. Right. It's so, you know, she helps her friend, <laughs> the abortion and, and that, and she thinks, you know, there has to be a better way. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of sets up her character. Now, Siobhan has this whole, um, backstory that actually gets played out. We we see a lot of her backstory get played out through Margaret. Right. One of the other point of view characters, because Margaret gets involved, romantically involved with Siobhan's ex-husband. So we begin to understand Siobhan's marriage and the reason she got the abortion and all that stuff by seeing Margaret's relationship with Gabe play out. Um, and I don't know why I knew I wanted to do it that way. It just kind of like the universe kind of handed me that. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> well, the suspense um, is so good because on the one hand, it's like, we have this awareness and it almost feels to me like, you know, I don't really watch horror movies, but like, if you watch like Hitchcock, Yes. And, and you're like, girl, don't go in there, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know why, but you should not go in there. And she's like, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm going to go in there. And you're like, oh, I'm going to have to watch this now. I'm going to have to watch her go in there. And that was how I felt with Margaret. 
Yes, right. So it it it, it adds an element of date, like the fact that we know that Siobhan, who's kind of a badass, right, like has yeah. divorced Gabe. Like we worry about Margaret. We're like, oh, Margaret. But Margaret, Margaret you is a don't know. Younger. You're from Maine. You don't know. <laughs> you hid away <laughs> at Berkeley. Yeah. Right. Exactly. All of those things. Right. You know, she's been focused on her career. She hasn't had a lot of romantic relationships like here she is. She's very like sort of although she's very successful career wise. And that was another thing I really wanted. I wanted a, a character who kind of unusually for 1971 had a career. Mm-hmm. And um, I sort of thought about what realistically that might have been. And also what what kinds of careers did I know anything about beyond writing? And I was like, oh, she's an English professor. Perfect. <laughs> you know, there we go. And it also was, it, it worked out well to set it, you know, you know, in and around the University of Chicago. It just, that worked for many reasons, kind of narrative reasons. So that is how that, so that's Veronica and Margaret. Okay. Right. And Siobhan. And then we have, um, Patty, the third right. point of view character. Patty also, I knew that we had to have a point of view character who was kind of conflicted about abortion as a as a service, as a procedure, right? And um, and I also knew that she was going to be having trouble in her marriage. Um, and so that was and, and I wanted Patty to have a, a real relationship with Veronica because I knew that that was going to be a those were going to create real problems in the friendship ultimately in the book and that there was going to be suspense and like like what was what's going to happen to this friend this long standing friendship relationship between Patty and Veronica when when Patty inevitably you know finds out right yeah that was another so, like oh girl <laughs> yeah I know I know and you you're worried know. Yeah. I know and and so I and I would say so okay so those are the three main point of view characters. So then, and we've already talked about Siobhan, who's important, yeah. but not a point of view character. But then we sort of have Eliza and Phyllis, who I assume are the other two that you're kind of the main, I'm main also secondary. I'm thinking of Patty's husband a little bit too. Oh, well, yes, there are the men. I know the men. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to hear from Gabe. I'm going to be honest. I, yeah. I had no interest in hearing Gabe's perspective, but I did, I was interested in Matt and I was to an extent, I got annoyed with Doug, let's be honest, but, but I was I felt like he was ultimately a good guy, especially for that era. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that was the men who are important, they're their husbands largely, right? So um, uh, Doug is Veronica's husband and Matt is Patty's husband. And I think, you know, Doug, Doug and Matt have their own mini arcs in the book um and their own kinds of conflicts which i guess we won't get into because those would be real yeah spoilers, those are but, yeah but yeah there's but challenges like yeah has. yeah and i think this is not a spoiler like you know one of doug's main challenges right is to is to figure out like so veronica's pregnant when the book starts and you know he's worried about his wife and unborn kid like who they want right they want this child right okay so and like it's it's real right and he's a, and he's a liberal man of his time right and so he went through many drafts let's just say let's just say <laughs> that um and and Matt too right yeah. also um a do- you know a doctor another provider um not of abortions but he's he's provides medical care and so he but also man of his time right so he had to and these were women of their time too like they had and so there was a lot of like for me okay you can't be anachronistic with this like um, but how do I also make these relationships satisfying to a 21st century reader? Like, I don't, I didn't, I wanted those marriages 
not to seem hopeless, right? Right. Um, or or like toxic somehow to a 21st century reader. Because, you know, men and women of that generation who were married then are still with us now and are celebrating, you know, 55 year anniversaries. And, you know, like, so the, a lot of those marriages did work out just fine. Um, anyway, like my, my parents are one of them. <laughs> um, anyway, so- yeah. So that, so that speaks sort of for the husbands and kind of uh -huh. how I had to think about them. And then Eliza was a, who's Patty's younger sister was a late addition. Late. Oh, she late. was. Yes. Yes. She feels so important. She is. And, and Patty's arc never really made sense until I introduced Eliza. Yeah. There's no way for her to, to, cause she has such strong opinions. Yeah. But Eliza is such a good opportunity for her, like a sister who's 10 years younger, who has very different life circumstances. Like she's right. almost Patty's Achilles heel in terms of holding on to her very staunch beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Phyllis, who and is Phyllis, um, who's a, really, who's, um, you know, the um, the only black member of Jane and a good friend of Margaret's. She's she's a colleague at the University of uh, Chicago. And it was really important to me to have an important secondary character who was black because this is a this was a complicated racial moment and and thing. I mean, it is it is factually accurate that Jane was the organization of Jane was largely white women of some privilege, right? you know, so who had money and time to be able to do what they were doing on a volu mostly volunteer basis. They were largely providing this service to, to Black women in Chicago. And, the, but it, it, there were one, maybe two Black members of Jane. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, okay, and, you know, I was like, I so I wanted to have that kind of a character be part of the cast. So, um, and I, I loved write, getting to write Phyllis, like Phyllis, Phyllis also had many, went through many drafts and, um, you know, to the point where, and, you know, her and her partner, Keith was also kind mm. of a late, late addition. Um, it I took me, Keith. it took me a while to figure out a lot of these arcs. Like it took me many drafts, like, uh, you know, and I think my editor kind of pointed this out to me at one point, she was like, you know, Carrie, like with your previous three novels, you read a bunch of biographies and histories of the time and the people, which gave you a lot of all the backstory <laughs> for all the people. Um, whereas for this, you know, it had been a long time since I had made up a bunch of characters out of whole cloth. So it took a lot of drafts for me to kind of get to know them well enough. And the other thing that I find is really satisfying as a reader and really challenging as a writer is this sort of complicated, I almost, it feels like an Amish barn raising or like putting up the big top of how those arcs play off of each other. Because it would be one thing to write the novel of Veronica, right? And her experience with it, or Siobhan, even if you took that angle. But when all of them are going through these arcs and the arcs are informing each other, how did you keep track and how how did you put all of that together in a way that worked the way that it does? So 
I wish I could like say that there was like a method to the madness, like <laughs> that I used storyboarding and like, you know, yeah. Scrivener and post-it notes. But the truth is I didn't. And I just, I kind of pantsed that aspect of it. And again, I'm, I'm a big rewriter. So a lot of this, a lot of the, um, a lot of it got worked out in the rewriting, but I will say this. So I, I know, I know other writers who write multiple point of view stories and they, they will write one character like all the way through to the end, then another one all the way. And then, and then they figure out how to braid them together. I did not do it that way. I could not I, do that. I could not so, do it. Yeah. Right. Because I think that would, to me, that would be harder. Yes. So I wrote it like Veronica, Patty, Margaret. And I, and I, I, I mostly stayed in that pattern. Although there are some chapters where there are some moments where like I leave Margaret behind maybe for a couple of chapters and then, or then I leave, you know, one of the other ones behind, but it's mostly like, that's the, that's the cycle. Right. And I just sort of would think to myself when I sat down every day to write, I was like, okay, so I've come to the end of a, a Patty section and it's time for Margaret. Like, and then, but then I would go back and reread the last Margaret. I would always have to go back because I had gotten so into Patty. I totally lost track of what was happening with Margaret. So I would go back and I was like, oh, okay. And that, you know, just a little bit of skimming would help me kind of reorient. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. So this is where we are. This is, and sort of, this is what needs to happen next. Yeah. That that's sense. how I did it. Yeah, because and then there are some points where, of course, there are points when the when the the sort of everything starts speeding up that I that this structure added so much suspense. And I was like, you know, you finish one chapter and you're like, oh! and then of course you're then with someone else. And I was like, oh, so <laughs> you know, that I can see being a really effective tool. And also just finishing that knowing that you can't just go on to the next chapter and get the the questions that you have answered. Yeah, yeah. And you would have to maybe wait two chapters. I know. In some instances, yeah. Unless two of them are involved, you know, if, right. if you're, and then you're getting kind of the other side with someone else and then you're like, oh, but it's, I I was both like, oh, damn it, Carrie. But I was also <laughs> like, good job <laughs> in, the, in the same moment. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, you know, it, it took some, it took some doing, <laughs> but it yeah. was fun. I mean, it was fun to do that. I was like, you know, it was fun to figure out where to leave people hanging and like, and how long I was going to make them wait and you know, all that stuff. So, and there were, you know, there were a couple of scenes, not very many that I would wind up rewriting from a different point of view. Oh, interesting. Not many though. Yeah. No, I'm I'm like trying to think back. I'm thinking about one in particular, but it's late in the game. So I can't, we can't talk about it, but, um, mm. but yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of pa um, Patty and Veronica scenes that I wound up deciding might be more effective from the other point of view. Got it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can see where that would be possible. So just a question about having this book come out now as a whole, um, there is, oh, I'm going to forget her name, which is terrible. There's a really wonderful New Yorker cartoonist who writes a substack and she shares some of her cartoons. And one of them she shared was about like back to school as we're, we're in autumn now. And one of them was two kids like walking back into school and they're like, oh, I can't wait to see which books are banned now. Um, and I was like, Ugh. and so I'm wondering, you know, how are you feeling putting out a book about one of the most 
I mean, it is a historical novel, yes, but it's also not as if this topic is no longer contentious, if not right. more so these days. And so how right. are you feeling about sharing it? How is that, how is that going? Um, <laughs> uh, I haven't heard of it being banned yet, although it seems likely, right? Um, I mean, it's, uh, uh, how do I feel about it? I guess, I mean, I have all of the the feelings about the book banning and everything that I think you would share, right? That yes. it's terrible and that like, I'm so proud of the writers that are like standing up like Jodi Picoult and, and yeah. everyone who are like really making some noise about how wrong this is, right? Um, and actually, you know, the Paris bookseller was about censorship in, in one way. So, um, you know, I just, I, I take a lot of solace from the truth that history will show these people to be so profoundly wrong. Um, you know, that's, I think, one of the benefits of being a historical novelist is that you do kind of see the bend of history, right? Like, the, the you know, the, what is, somebody said this, like the arc of history bends I feel like toward, it's the arc, yeah. Yeah, oh, bends toward that, freedom. But, yes. Isn't that the, isn't that, yeah. And people have used it as a meme for, for, for many things. Um, and I do, I do basically see that. I mean, we are in a, we're in an unfortunate political moment right now on, on many, many levels, right. For reproductive rights, for books, um, for, for freedom of speech, you know, freedom of speech is one of these, it's, this has become such a complicated problem because you know, provide abortion providers now don't even know what they can say in an office with someone who needs reproductive health care, right? Like, yeah, that is, it, it's just so problematic. Um, so I, I hope that this book, what I really hope for this book, whatever, whatever, I haven't experienced any, you know, sort of political backlash, negative comments so far. I think mostly at this point, people who have read it are, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Yeah. I, um, I hope, I hope ultimately that this book will land in some hands of people like Patty who are maybe on a fence um, and that they, it might help them see this issue from a different point of view um, and kind of see it a little bit more in its historical context. That would be great. Um, you know, but I also really hope that the book, you know, you know, under the umbrella of preaching to the choir will land in the hands of some, some providers. And by, I mean, providers, very bit large, like umbrella here, like not just people who are performing abortions, but people who are referring them, people who are getting women from state to state, people who are making sure that they can get, you know, mifepristone, all of those things, all of those providers will feel seen by this book, right? Because they are doing really hard work. It is hard on them personally. It is hard on them professionally, financially, emotionally. It's just, it's hard on a lot of levels. So, you know, I hope that they, I hope that they feel seen by this book and by the history that they're joining up with a really like amazing history of people who have done this kind of work. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, it's, it's one of these things when you put out a story that is timely, that you have this, on the one hand, it's so validating. On the other hand, it so highlights 
how long the issue has been going on, how many, how many people's lives have been impacted by it. And it gives it a real heft and a real solidity, I think, and importance, which is lovely. You can feel it reading those stories. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like on that subject of, I always like to mention this, like, um, when in, I think the fall of 2021, I went to a women's March in Boston near where I live mm. and, um, you know, people had all kinds of great homemade signs and, you know, really just all the, all the good signs. But my favorite was on green particle board is women who were probably 15, 20 years older than I am. Um, and black Sharpie had written, I can't believe we're still fighting for this shit. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, and this oh, is yeah. a year before Dobbs, right? Yeah. You know, that the fact that we are still having to like have rallies and marches and we can't take it for granted and all of that. Yeah. No, that it's not possible. And the image that that you shared in the book of a, a rally of them surrounding the person in who was being taken away in a police car so oh. that the car couldn't leave. Oh, and right. It wasn't, that was a f- it wasn't, it was a reference to something that had happened. Yes. But just that image and thinking that I don't know if people would feel safe to do that now. It's a, it's a great point. Yeah. You're talking about the, the, it's the beginning of the free speech movement in Berkeley, which is, I grew up in California and I went to Berkeley, both my parents went to Berkeley in the sixties. So like that story was so, it has like become part of my DNA. Um, and I was glad that I got to use it in this book. (laughs) Yeah. It really, I found it really striking and just all of these things, because this is the thing about historical is you have to look at it from standing where you are now, right? what these events are, but also to think of this doesn't feel that different. And yet there are aspects that feel really different. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I think one of the tasks of the historical novelist is, we talked about this a little bit with when we were talking about the characters earlier, but is how how do you like, make a historical story, especially kind of a political one, satisfying to modern readers without being anachronistic. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I have that. I wondered, I mean, it seems like it must've been a struggle to make that happen. Well, so I think what I, what I think, you know, craft wise, what I often come back to with almost it's hard for, I'm hard pressed to think of a craft question that can't be answered by with the following. <laughs> go back to the characters. Yes. Like, who are your characters? How have you, how, who are they really? And when you really address the character's humanity, then the story ultimately becomes timeless, right? Because people, yes, we're always evolving and, you know, the language we use and, and the way we think now is different. Um, but in the end, these are real people going through things that are very relatable, um, you know, and and that's it, right? You go back to the characters. I mean, I just read um, Matrix by Lauren Groff, and, you know, uh-huh. about a bunch of, you know, nuns, nuns in the, you know, in England <laughs> in the, in the, um, it's like the 1600s, in the, uh, isn't it? No, or I think it's early. like the 1200, like oh. the late 11s and 12s, hundreds. You're right. Really medieval, right? Yeah. So relatable. Um, because she's just like going, doing a deep dive into their humanity, you know? Um, 
So that's, I think the answer for me, at least. I think so, because the, the characters that you include, there are ways in which almost all of them could, I don't know, maybe not all of them, but there are points with some of them where they're challenging in a way where it would be easy for me to write them off. Right. Yeah. And, and I think I was particularly worried about that with Patty, but yet particularly with the inclusion of Eliza, it's possible to see humanity of characters that you find challenging when you see them in a situation and think, okay, I might feel that way in that situation. Or if these were the resources I had, this might be the best I could do. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and I think, I think that part of the idea for, um, bringing Eliza into the into the cast of characters is because, you know, I have been aware over the years of, you know, we see sort of conservative politicians changing their minds about certain issues when a child of theirs comes out as gay or or needs a particular service or I mean, I mean, the gun issue is, I don't know what to oh, do with the gun issue, but no, um, none of us seem to. No, um, but but you do see people changing their mind and their politics and, you know, about things when it becomes personal, when the personal is political, right? Right. Um, you know, and so I thought that that felt very real and authentic. And so that hence, um, <laughs> dog going after the mail. Um, anyway, so, so, so there's, so that's how I got there with Eliza. Yeah. And I do hope that, you know, readers will be able to read that and and see themselves in it, right. See the possibility that they would maybe have a similar kind of experience if that happened to them. I think also the possibility is to think about, you know, those of us reading whatever age we are now, you and I are pretty much at the same point. Um, in 2023, reading this book, but also thinking about former generations that we know and thinking about, oh, okay, I felt like I had a clearer picture of what that would be like for parents and aunts and and so on in in that time period, which was, I don't know why it felt different in reading this book than in other situations. Um, you know, and it I can't was entirely different. say why. <laughs> well, you know, I think I mean one of the things that I, I re- that really showed up for me, like in a really interesting way, in, when I was doing the research, was how differently people talked about abortion in the late '60s and early '70s than we talk about talk about it now. And you know, I I really wanted that to feel authentic to the time. I was like, okay, so they they you know this all the language around that that the so-called self-styled pro-life movement, which we now are trying to, um, anyway, this, this pro-life movement hijacked the, the language around abortion to get everybody on both sides of this issue, talking about it the way they wanted to talk about it in terms of life Mm. and, you know, all of this stuff when they just didn't talk about it this way then. Right. Which was eye-opening for me. I was like, Okay. You know, like these women were, you know, they were feminists. In some cases, they were radical feminists. In many cases, they were socialist feminists, but like they were all about women and autonomy and independence. And it was all part of this movement in in the larger fabric of society, right? Which it grew out of the civil rights movement. 
And, you know, and then we have the, you know, women marching on on Washington in 1970, um, doing a, a women's strike. One of my favorite um, signs from that is don't iron while the strike is hot. Oh, yes. Um, I know. Right. It's so, so great. Good. And like for equality. Right. And, you know, there were there were demands that women were making of society. Um, and and abortion was just one part of that. And it was it was an important part, but it was it, it was part of the larger protest for equality. Right. Yes. This idea that women needed to have control over their own bodies if they were going to have equality under the law. Um, and we have this issue has gotten completely separated from that, from that language, which is its origin. <laughs> right. Um, so we've 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 taken abortion out of the language of autonomy and, and feminism and all that and liberation and all that stuff and put it into a different bucket of language. And I do see people, we are now moving it back. I see it. I see it. Well, I'm no, I'm, I'm not going to say we're moving it back. We're not moving it back because the, because the reproductive justice movement is light years ahead of where it was in 1970 for in, in wonderful reasons, important yeah. ways yes um so but but we are taking it out of the language of the anti-abortion movement even just like renaming the pro-life movement anti-abortion is an important yeah you know language piece right because it takes that the power of that language that pro-life, quote unquote, pro-life. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people are gonna be able to see me. I'm using rabbit ears. She's um, using, yeah, pro, we've got we've got quotes around yeah, pro-life. Pro-life. Pro I'm using quotes around um, pro-life. Um, we're taking that language away and the power of that language away from it. And the more we use words like anti-abortion, the, the stronger the reproduct the case for reproductive justice becomes. Agreed. I'm... I'm so grateful. We could, we could go on all day. I could go we on could. for days. We yes. could, but you have to talk about this book and so many, this is the, this is the reality <laughs> is I hope you're drinking lots of tea. Uh, yeah. Well, right now I've got coffee, but I think okay. water is next. <laughs> I know it's so much to talk about, to talk about books to share, but I hope that everyone gets the message and understands it and connects with the book. It was such a treat to read it and such a joy to hear some of the process that was necessary to bring it into being. I really had a terrific time talking with you today. Um, it was great. Thanks for having me. Oh my goodness. My pleasure. Thank you, Carrie. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room, even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format a thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M- M-I-R-O dot com.